Hello and welcome to The Solution, a wellness manifesto. I'm your host, Dr. Nate Lowenstein, and this is episode number 10, Cows, Chickens, and Breakfast. Oh my. All right, let's get into it. All right, so on to this week's topic. I'm going to toss it over to my co-host here, Steph. When it comes to milk as a food group, could you summarize what you grew up knowing to be true about milk? Oh, milk. Um, You have to have it for in order to have a balanced diet. You need it for the calcium so you have strong bones. Right. So it's it's necessary. It's necessary. Got to have it. Great. What about eggs? What have you been told about eggs? Oh, the egg um, causes high cholesterol. Leads to heart disease. Um, too many eggs isn't good for you unless it's egg whites. Right. Whites are good. Yolks, murder. <laughs> Bad news. So when we're looking at breakfast, we got milk and eggs. One is necessary. The other one might be dangerous. So when it comes to milk, we must have milk in our diet or it's not healthy. And when it comes to eggs... If they're in the whole form, they're bad for us. So does that essentially sum up what you've heard over the years about those two things? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. So we're going to start with milk, and it actually illustrates a pretty big pet peeve of mine when it comes to nutrition information, particularly that is in media, and that's that a food product, any food product, which milk is, can somehow become necessary. The food groups and the food pyramid are basically what created this assumption. So we're going to kind of talk about what food is, what it actually is. So, Steph, why do you eat food? Well, it's necessary to live. That's the only reason you eat food. <laughs> okay. Occasionally, it, it tastes good and I get hungry. Right. So, hungry, tastes good, and it fuels you. Nutrients. So, our relationship with food is pretty complex in our society. It's, it's woven into the fabric of society. It plays a role in our families, our relationships, our special occasions, you know, What's a wedding without the big dinner that follows? And it's why we will develop a literal relationship with our food. But ultimately, our food does serve the fundamental purpose of providing us with nutrients. And there are two categories of nutrients. There are macronutrients, which we've mentioned before, protein, fats, and carbs. And there are micronutrients, which are your vitamins and your minerals. And as long as what you're eating provides adequate intake of all the necessary nutrients, the source of those is not really all that important. So the idea that you absolutely must have some specific type of food for your balanced nutrition is pretty silly. Yeah. Do you remember when paleo first started to come out and everyone was like, oh, how can you not eat grains? You have to have grains. Right. In the news articles, news stories would say that if you're not eating grains, you're leaving out nutrients, which is not true. You're you're leaving out a category of food, but not necessarily nutrients. Because there are nutrients found in grain, but those nutrients can be found in other things. So it really becomes an argument of what is the best source for a nutrient. And that's going to depend on a couple of things, including your taste preference, what you like to eat. But also, if there are more beneficial sources, you'd want to know those. And Steph and I, we kind of differ on food. So Steph, what do you think about eating food? My preference is if I could just get it out of the way and just get all of my nutrients that I need in one day, 
just in one setting and then in a capsule form it doesn't even have to be food i know i know right <laughs> and uh yeah unless it's steak i enjoy steak i sit down and i really i would i would savor that one so that's a fundamental difference between steph and i and i think i speak for most of us when i say i like to eat um i like food and that's important because in the varieties of whole foods that we get, the various colors and textures, there are likely groups of nutrients whose activity and potentially even existence we don't fully understand. So getting all of your food or nutrition in supplement and pill form would not be ideal, even though Steffi might think that it would be great. Okay. So what does all this have to do with milk? Good. This week's episode is called Cows and Chickens because each of these animals essentially creates a food that has some controversy associated with it. And today we're going to clear some of that up and hopefully we don't screw it up too bad. But with regard to milk, as Steph said earlier, most of us grew up being told that it was a necessary part of a healthy diet. And I believe that myself until someone asked me a couple of pretty thought-provoking questions. And these questions don't necessarily represent the science on the subject, but it is worth thinking about. Name an animal on earth that routinely drinks the milk produced by a different animal. Mm, I, I can't think of any. Right. Unless they're it, in captivity or in a zoo, that doesn't happen. Right. Name an animal on earth that is part of their regular diet drinks milk into adulthood. I can't think of a single one. Well, people. Well, well we are animals. But those questions on their own doesn't mean that milk's bad. No, that's right. It doesn't. It just means that humans are doing something that is not typically found in the natural world. So it's worth asking the question, is that beneficial or not? So one reason milk consumption is so widespread and popular is that in the United States, due to lobbying, the Dairy Product Stabilization Act of 1983 came into being. It's a federal law that states that dairy products are basic foods that are a valuable part of the human diet that their production plays a significant role in our economy, and that these products must be available to ensure adequate nutrition. And that last sentence is the important one. Yeah, I mean, that does make sound like it's pretty essential. It does. Now listen to this part from the same bill. This is a quote. It is in the public interest to authorize the establishment of an orderly procedure for financing and carrying out a coordinated program of promotion designed to strengthen the dairy industry's position in the marketplace and to maintain and expand domestic and foreign markets and uses for fluid milk and dairy products. So the government, in the interest of public health and the economy, started marketing American dairy. Right. And this is where... These ad campaigns that we remember from growing up, like Got Milk, this is where they came from, where they were paying celebrities to pose with milk mustaches, oh, things like that. I loved those. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> and there's now government-mandated contributions for these campaigns, so farmers are required by law to pay in 15 cents for every 100 pounds of milk produced. Currently, the American Dietary Guidelines recommend between two and three cups of non-fat and low-fat milk and milk products, depending on your age. And it's important to note that they are recommending low-fat and fat-free, and we'll discuss why here in a moment. Now, what is the important question to ask here, Steph? Is milk really a necessary part of a good diet, and is low-fat or fat-free really better than the whole food? You nailed it. It's almost like it was <laughs> written for you. <laughs> a few points to understand here. One is that milk is sold when milk is sold via interstate commerce, it's required by federal law to be pasteurized, which is basically boiling the milk to a high temperature to kill bacteria. Some bacteria in milk would be beneficial. 
you know, we have tons of bacteria living in our digestive system, but if there are any pathogens, any bad bacteria, for example, on the udder or the nipple of the cow, they could get into the milk. Milk is food. It will grow bacteria. And that's a potential for disease, particularly when you're producing 90 million tons of milk every year, which is what we do in the United States. Pasteurization reduces calcium and phosphorus in milk by up to 5%, and it drops some of the B vitamins in milk by up to 10%. So we're not getting all the benefits we would be getting if this was a whole real food. Some of the benefits of milk that have been documented, observational studies, they've linked dairy consumption to lower blood pressure due to a naturally occurring ACE inhibitor protein. Uh, dairy consumption has also linked to a reduction in cardiovascular disease and colon cancer risk. Some of those studies specifically mention the polyunsaturated fatty acids as the likely culprit. So keep that in mind. There are other sources of those things that can provide those nutrients, those fats. Another benefit is that nutrients in milk are satiating. It, it'll fill you up. It slows gastric emptying, and that's mostly due to the fat content in milk. So this may lead to reduced consumption. However, several studies show that low-fat and skim milk are not associated with weight loss, and skim milk has actually been associated with weight gain because it's the fat in the milk that makes you feel full, and they've taken the fat out. Whole milk has been associated with weight loss, though, most likely due to the fat content. So, But none of these things I've discussed are what milk is really known for. So what is milk really known for? Calcium. Calcium. But for what? Stronger bones. Right. So the calcium in milk gives us strong bones. So now the question we have to ask is, does dairy consumption improve bone health? What do you think? Well, I've always been told yes, but now you're making me wonder. It actually looks like it doesn't. That dairy consumption doesn't result in healthier bones. In fact, multiple studies carried out in different populations in different countries have shown either no reduced risk of fracture, and some have actually shown a positive correlation between milk intake and fracture risk. In fact, the countries with the highest dairy consumption right now also have the highest rates of osteoporosis. So milk as a necessity is essentially based on the idea that calcium intake outside of other factors improves bone health, which is an oversimplification, and we are guilty of that all over the place. It's just because bone contains calcium and milk contains calcium, but that doesn't mean that just in just ingesting calcium creates a stronger bone. That would be like saying, all right, Steph, you want to get stronger muscles? What are muscles made out of? Protein. They're made out of protein. So you just drink protein shakes, sit on the couch, and become Arnold. <laughs> Wouldn't that be easy? That would be easy. Are there other concerns associated with milk? Um, actually, there's a few. There's one that really stands out is that milk consumption early in life uh, seems to at least in some cases act as a trigger for type 1 diabetes. Studies in Finland and the United States have made this association. And in the study in the U.S., there was a 30% reduction in type 1 diabetes cases in a population of kids that held off on milk consumption through the first three months of life. And the study was basically comparing human breast milk to dairy milk, cow's milk. Also, a pretty large study of adolescent boys found that skim milk ingestion was linked to acne. Now, this could be due to some of the hormones found in the commercially produced milk products. And probably the most important study, particularly relevant to the work we're doing on this show, has to do with mortality. You remember that the whole reason for the 800 grams of fruits and vegetables every day is because it reduces mortality. Well, it turns out 
According to a 2014 study, three glasses of milk per day, which is what's recommended right now for an adult, was associated with increased mortality in men and women. So this was an observational study. It established this correlation, but it's worth noting that the same study found increased markers in milk drinkers that are associated with inflammation and oxidative stress. Now, this might be due to the types of fats we find inside industrially produced products and maybe also with the hormones that are found in that milk. And we're kind of going to go through the difference between industrial milk and a grass-fed cow. Now, all of this is not meant to establish that a person can't or shouldn't drink milk. Again, the real answer for almost everything in nutrition is what, Steph? It depends. Correct. It always depends. The first thing to determine regarding whether or not you should use dairy foods is do you want to? That's the main thing. Because if you don't, where we're at already, do you have to? No. Right. So if you don't want to eat dairy foods, don't worry about it. Get your fat and calcium from a different source, and there are plenty available. The second important thing to consider is do you tolerate dairy? Um, everybody's heard of lactose intolerance. What that means is that you have there's an enzyme called lactase. It breaks down a sugar found in milk. That's lactose. And the gene responsible for the production of lactase typically becomes inactive in childhood because, again, when we're looking at milk, like what is the purpose of milk? It's to take an infant animal and help it grow to the point where it can eat food. So cow milk makes baby cows into? Big cows. Big cows. And people milk turns infants into? I almost said big infants. Big infants. Well, toddlers. <laughs> so basically... Cat milk turns kittens into cats. Yeah. If you remember the Fockers, they were milking cats on that show. Oh, I remember that. In <laughs> Europeans, about 7,500 years ago, there was a genetic shift that resulted in lactase production persisting in a portion of that population, which was likely due to a longer exposure of cow's milk. We were just drinking it more. Now, according to a 2003 study, between 65 and 75% of the world's population is lactose intolerant. And yet we have government recommendations that we should all be drinking two to three glasses of milk a day. Now, ethnicity, you know, where in the world you or your ancestors came from definitely plays a role. 95% of Asian Americans, 75% of American natives, and 70% of African Americans, 53% of uh, Hispanic Americans are lactose intolerant, whereas only 15% of Caucasians. So you can see that cultural exposure over time, the environment of those people played a role in whether or not they can tolerate lactose. So if you do want to incorporate dairy foods into your diet and milk is something you tolerate well, the important thing to know about milk is that source matters. I've already mentioned that pasteurization removes some nutrition and that all of the beneficial bacteria that would be in milk is gone. Now, raw milk is legal and available in 13 states, and it may be available for you if it's something you're interested in. For this, I would only get this from a source that was locally produced where you can go meet the person producing it. Beyond that, the diet of the cow producing the milk becomes pretty important. Grass-fed dairy cattle produce milk that is, from a nutrition perspective, more desirable. It contains higher contents of specific fats more associated with health benefits and the big thing here is a ratio between omega-6 fats and omega-3. A diet high in omega-6 fats is associated with inflammation and even autoimmune conditions, and grass-fed dairy has up to four times the omega-3 content compared to grain-fed milk. 
There are things worth considering if you decide to add dairy into your diet. And that's not even an, an exhaustive list. But just remember that the skim milk and the low-fat milk was associated with inflammation and stress. We don't see that when we look at grass-fed, local, raw milk. Okay, And cheeses made from that milk and other products made from that milk, yogurt, etc. Did I ever tell you about the time I tried raw milk? No. Oh, so when I was little... We always we always grew up on the skim milk. Yeah. And when I was little, I went to stay with my cousin out on their farm. The next morning, go to breakfast, and they pour me a glass of milk. And I take a drink. That stuff, it's thick. It was warm, and it was super sweet. Delicious. Oh. Well, as a kid, I was like, this is nasty. Yeah. But now I'm like, might be good in coffee. Let's make some ice cream. <laughs> All right. We're going to shift gears to eggs. So when you look at the U.S. dietary guidelines and how they've changed over time, it's easy to see why the egg remains confusing and controversial. This is actually pretty interesting. So we're going to do a rundown of the timeline just to give you some context. And I'm going to try to go through this pretty quickly. In 1968, 300 milligrams of cholesterol daily and no more than three egg yolks per week was what was recommended. In 1980, they said moderate your use of eggs, period. In 85, they said moderate your use of egg yolks. Steffi, why, why is that? Why did they say... No more yolks. Well, because they, they thought the yolk had too much cholesterol. Right. And we're in 1985. So this is where the height of the cholesterol is bad movement hap that happened. Um, and we will likely talk about cholesterol being bad sometime down the track. So now 1990 happens. They advise us to use egg whites in place of whole eggs while baking because, you know, the yolk is fat and terrible. 95. Now we can have 300 milligrams of cholesterol again, but we should still limit intake of egg yolks. 2000, Y2K, now we use egg yolk and whole eggs sparingly, but egg whites we may put wherever we want. 2010, one egg yolk per day does not increase cholesterol or cardiovascular disease risk. 2015, they removed the 300 milligram of cholesterol restriction they indicated that men are probably eating too many eggs and that we should eat as little dietary cholesterol as possible. Keep in mind that evidence indicates that dietary cholesterol has very little to do with the cholesterol level in your body. When we actually dig into epidemiological studies, we do find a bit of back and forth. However, there are now several studies that show no association with consumption of one egg per day and an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. It's worth pointing out, though, that some studies have found risk associated with increased egg consumption and cardiovascular disease in people with type 2 diabetes. So it may be worth noting that you'd be wise to get your diabetes under control before going crazy with the eggs. One of my favorite reviews on the subject was published in the journal Nutrition in 2017 showed no reduction in cardiovascular disease risk when consuming egg substitute. And it showed that consumption of three eggs per day did not increase risk of cardiovascular disease in people with metabolic syndrome. So they have a what? Pre-existing condition. Right. Metabolic syndrome. And eating eggs didn't make them sicker in terms of heart health. Another study, this one was published in 2005, found that six-week egg ingestion showed no increase in LDL, which is your so-called bad cholesterol, and no increase in total cholesterol and no adverse effect on endothelial function, meaning the walls of your arteries are not negatively affected by short-term egg intake. 
Again, I'm probably not giving you an exhaustive look at the evidence, but there's quite a bit of data over a pretty significant period of time to support the idea that eggs aren't mass murderers. They're not out there just wholesale killing people like Chucky. They're just eggs. They're just eggs. (laughs) Well, so we're talking about source in terms of our dairy now is egg source. Is that important? It is. Um, And it's actually a bit confusing. The first thing you need to look at is labeling. If you see the following words, cage-free or natural, understand that those terms are not regulated by any governing body. So it can mean anything. If you see the words vegetarian fed, that's irrelevant because chickens are required to be fed a diet free of animal byproducts. You know, they can eat bugs as long as they find them on their own, but you can't feed them pig's blood or something weird. However, a true free-ranging chicken will likely eat bugs, which are found in their normal environment. So free range, this means that they have to have access to the outdoors. So keep that in mind when you're shopping at the grocery store, you see the word free range. It doesn't mean that they actually go outside and there's no one making sure that they do. It just means there's an open door somewhere. When you see omega-3, it means that those chickens were actually supplemented with flaxseed. So they will have higher omega-3s in there. And hormone-free is another smokescreen because in the United States, we're not allowed to give chickens any hormones. So that's meaningless. If you see, you know, when you see cage-free, vegetarian-fed, hormone-free eggs, none of that matters. Now, when you see certified organic, that does mean that the chickens are allowed access to the outdoors. Again, I don't think anyone's auditing whether or not they go out there. And they are fed an all-organic diet free from pesticides and GMOs. Does any of that make a difference? Which is the important question. You can see that some of this is simply done for marketing and some of it is legitimate. But the main thing to understand is that one, true free-range chickens are nutritionally superior to non-free-ranging. They're going to have four to five times as much omega-3 fats, just like their raw milk counterparts, uh, and up to 200% more vitamin E than their non-free-range counterparts. Buying eggs locally often lets you meet the chickens or see where they live. And the eggs that we get are incredible. I mean, they, they eat watermelon. They live off bugs that they find in the, in the grass. The yolks, like you do a side-by-side comparison and you look at the color of the yolk and it just looks. Better, darker. Yeah. yeah. So, and it's important to understand that most of the nutrients in an egg are in the yolk. When you, when you crack that free range egg next to the industrial thing, like Steph said, you're going to see a stark contrast in colors. And the other thing I want to mention uh, from my own experience is this, that when I left the army, I had labs drawn. I had high cholesterol, high blood pressure. I was obese. Technically I had all of the markers of chronic illness and I wasn't even 30 years old yet. And I was told at some point you're going to need medication in the very near future. And I went through this wellness training and the biggest thing that changed for me was my diet. I was already exercising pretty regularly. When I moved back to the U.S., I had to have a physical and all of these things were within normal limits. My cholesterol was normal. My blood pressure was normal. In the meantime, Steph and I both have been eating, what, two to three eggs with a side of bacon bacon every day. Now, this is not a scientific study. Um, it is a case study, which is not strong evidence, but that's the experience I had. I also dramatically increased my fruit and vegetable intake in that time, cut out most processed foods, and I was committed to physical activity. So I was getting in all three, eat well, move well, think well. So hopefully, in the course of discussing eggs and milk, we've given you something to think about when it comes to food choices. The foods we've talked about both have benefits and both have risks depending on the population who's eating them and the quality of food you're buying. 
but they may not be what you've previously heard. Remember that as a general rule of thumb, the whole food option recovered from the environment most suitable for the animal produces the most nutritious food. And the importance of this cannot be overstated. Real whole food. And you think about how we use milk at breakfast. What do we do with it, Steph? Well, we pour it on cereal. And what's that cereal got in it? Sugar. And then you, you, and then you drink that sugar milk. Right. It's delicious. <laughs> if you were me back in the day, you'd take a sugary cereal and put more sugar on top because... You know, it was great. Oh, uh, you remember being a little kid and you'd like get to the last scoop of cereal and they'd come up with nothing but sugar? Yes, I did. <laughs> yeah. Gross. So you added sugar to yours too. <laughs> All right. Uh, so that about sums it up for this week. Next week, we're actually going to sit down and have a conversation with a friend who recently ran 100 miles. Oh, man. And we're going to talk about her preparation and execution in terms of eating, moving, and thinking well. Um, and just get her take on what that experience was like because I'm interested. So we will see you then. Thanks so much for joining me today on The Solution, A Wellness Manifesto. I appreciate you being here. I hope that the information we covered in this week's episode was beneficial to you and that you can apply it into your life to help yourself move away from sickness and towards health. I'd like to thank my sponsor, Functional Performance Chiropractic and Wellness, for their ongoing support. And I'd like to appeal to you. If you know anyone who would benefit from the information we're talking about on this show, and I know you do, please refer them back to episode number one so we can all get started on the same page. I look forward to working with you and them. Until next week, take good care of yourself.